0: Hello and welcome to the Two Brits, One Orange Ball podcast. I'm joined by my bold-headed friend,
1: Mark Leward. What is up, Jeffrey? Welcome back, my man. It's good to be back. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. it feels like we're starting again, mate. It's been that long.
1: It does a little bit. What episode are we on now? 11? 10? I've lost count.
0: Mate, we've hit, we've hit double figures. We're on wow. episode 10, which is which is pretty mental, really.
1: Happy days. Just an FYI, your hair has gone nuts. <laughs>
0: Didn't we say this like five pods ago? So yeah, it's it's pretty
1: dramatic at the moment. We're at the hairdressers open tomorrow, right? I think so, mate. I think so. Not soon enough for you, mate. It's gone absolutely crazy.
0: Yeah. I'm on a pod with two bold guys, so I look like the crazy scientist. Great, it's great news.
1: How are you feeling about it on the sort of 1 to 10 afro ratio? What we saying?
0: First like couple of months I was like right firmly in shit stage this is going to suck and then I got to like a reasonable like point where I was like oh it's, it's, it's got some shape to it now and now it's just like past that point just ridiculous. <laughs> I envy the bold guys of this world right now that's all I'll say. Anyway man so yeah moving on to today's pod uh, obviously we're, we're welcoming Sam Nita, founder of hootsfix.com who has done an incredible amount of work for the British basketball scene in the last decade and beyond that to be fair. I thought I'd just give you a, a little bit of background really how I first became aware of Hootspicks and, and met Sam many many years ago to give a bit of context to this pod so those of you who have been listening to some of the podcasts before I was a journalist in a former life and kind of coming out of university third year to be fair I kind of wanted to do what Sam does if I'm honest I was at a stage where my route in my head at 18 to 21 was the only way to do that is potentially to join a national newspaper or a regional paper I had various conversations with people about doing that and then the kind of consensus that I kept getting back was that there wasn't enough interest in basketball in this country to warrant potentially full-time reporters for for that, or even if you're just a sports reporter, the time ability to get space for basketball news was fairly limited, especially on the national scale, which I'm sure everyone knows relatively well, predominantly dominated by football, rugby and cricket, as we've already mentioned. To go in back to the the pod with Pat the other day. Obviously, we talked about the London 2012 experience. What I didn't mention was it came up to doing an interview with Sam many, many years ago when he was around three years into the launch of Hoops which was part of my dissertation at the time. So long story short from there, I obviously was looking to, to do a bit of a review really of how the London 2012 Olympics would... Help the legacy of media coverage for basketball in this country for reasons I've just outlined. Went to various games, including the kind of GB versus. Team USA which was an exhibition just before the Olympics from memory that led me to people speaking to people like Greg Tanner who we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more later in this pod who at the time ran MVP magazine who'd obviously previously run a website called UK and the predecessor of MVP magazine Fade Away, and Basketball 24-7 and that was another website that it kind of moulded into. The story behind that is obviously I got my first national magazine coverage i suppose in terms of a feature in a double-page spread which i don't know if any of you listening would remember the the kind of star wars edition of the magazine which for me at the time was was a huge huge moment and off the back of that wasn't directly tied to what i was working on but greg introduced me partly to sam and the work he was doing how big that was for the community in the uk basketball wise I went to meet him just outside, I think, Westfield Shopping Centre in London, sort of mid-2013, I had a chat with him and got to know everything that he'd been up to. And I think this was just before the days of the Hootswix All-Star Classic, so that hadn't kicked off yet. So he was still kind of looking at NCA eligibility for players and things like that. The first podcast, I think, was coming out maybe a few weeks later, and it was kind of, it was pretty early days. But obviously very grateful for Samson coming on <laughs> again and, and chatting to us about how that's kind of progressed in the last seven years everything that he's been contributing from the women's game to the men's game to obviously the juniors and basketball players from the UK abroad in college and the NBA as well so very very excited to kind of catch up with him and delve a little bit deeper into all of those insights I guess and Mark I think it's been it's been quite a nice process for yourself as well doing the research for this pod listening to some of the array of uh, podcasts that we've, we've done research on Hoot six and Sam have
2: completed
1: No absolutely that Jay really excited to meet Sam as a sort of outsider initially towards the British basketball sort of setup and, and community Sam's kind of been that main outlet and source of information for me which obviously proves that he's doing a fantastic job so yeah really excited to have him on the show get to learn a little bit more about his, his experiences and, and deep dive into his knowledge even more so so yeah really looking forward to it bro
0: Absolutely Right. And uh, following on from that, we'll we'll go through a quick update on NBA news. General Bulls and Knicks. If you want to kick off, mate.
1: Yeah, bro. So a few things about the NBA news. Much going on. The NBA teams expected to travel to Orlando, Florida, July seventh in preparation for the resumption and ultimate conclusion of this year's NBA season. Nine more players have tested positive for COVID nineteen in the most recent bout of testing. At present, 25 players and 10 team staff members have tested positive for the virus since testing began on the 23rd of June. Reported by The Guardian, the NBA released a statement Thursday stating that any player, coach or team staff member who tested positive will remain in self-isolation until they satisfy public health protocols, discontinue in isolation and have been cleared by a physician. little bit concerning for me, Jay, a few little alarm points. Obviously, due to the local lockdown of Leicester in recent times, a little bit concerned about that second spike and how that it's going to impact the continuity of sport as a whole
0: yeah mate 100% i'm i'm not hugely comfortable with it either you know, there's there's lots of people sort of saying cancel the season, even NBA-wise. and I'm of the opinion that they're probably in the kind of safer realm because of all the testing that they'll be subjected to. But at the same time, you know, like everyone, I have the concerns about just seeing people in groups still. I'm one of those people. Premiership still kind of scares me a bit seeing people doing normal things. Having the guys on the sideline with with masks and things. As Pat said on the previous pod I'm sure Adam Silver will take all the precautions necessary.
1: A little bit further on that as well. So out of the 30 teams that comprise the league, just to give people a little bit of context. Only 22 have been chosen to contest for the championship in the Orlando bubble. With the start of next season scheduled for December, it would mean that the eight remaining teams would have gone nearly nine months without organised competitive basketball. Our Bulls and Knicks obviously need all the help they can get and they will be included in that second bracket. NBA League Insider Woj reported Thursday that the league were close to signing off on a second bubble located in your Chicago for the eight teams that were not invited to play in Orlando enabling mini training camps and subsequent games against other clubs with a target date of September. I think that this could ultimately prove to be problematic for those remaining teams to get their buy-in, bro. Reported by Jackie McMullen, Detroit Pistons head coach Dwayne Casey informed that most of the coaches prefer having their own mini camps instead of the proposed idea of a second bubble. I think that the NBA, and particularly Commissioner Adam Silver, you just alluded to, Jay, have proven to be innovative and could be another source of opportunity for the NBA. One possible incentive, perhaps, would be to play for that prize of the number one overall draft pick in this up coming years draft. Over the past weekend and recent days we have seen teams training facilities closed due to members of the travelling party testing positive for COVID-19. The Denver Nuggets and LA Clippers have been shut due to basically members of the team testing positive. Denver Nuggets star Nikola Jokic is reportedly doing well following a positive test and should receive clearance within a week to travel to Denver. The big man is currently in his native Serbia following the league's hiatus.
0: Yeah mate it's it's, it's, it's all pretty scary times. Rudy Gobert has come out hasn't he and said that he's still kind of suffering some effects from the covid transmission i suppose is what you call it and still hasn't necessarily got all of his senses back properly which is a bit of a worry in, in, in talking to doctors about potential long-term effects and stuff like that which again is something that i still think that a lot of us don't don't really know as a public and even potentially as, as medical people it hasn't been a huge amount of research on because oh, well, there can't be really because we're not that far down the line of what that will mean long-term but I mean, just hope for the best and hope that prioritise health over anything else.
1: Absolutely that, Jay. It's difficult, man. Like, we don't know the long-term effects because it's never happened before. We are very much in the realm of the unknown. Hopefully those people that are suffering and have tested positive do have all recoveries and the long-term effects aren't too significant and that's all that we can hope for at this stage Um, do you want to just mention a little bit about your balls mate a little bit bit about your uh, balls update news anything to report there sure mate yeah i mean there's
0: there's there's not a huge amount if, uh, if i'm completely honest a little bit of a scrape of the barrel in terms of what is happening right now but i think the the big news for for balls fans is obviously that coach jim boyden is likely to be the coach for at least this season still has a million pounds left on his contract that's guaranteed so and not quite moving on from that period of time just yet same <laughs> same names are in the hat a consideration for the coach potentially for next year that we've mentioned in previous pods like Adrian Griffin and Kenny Atkinson what path will go down I'm still not entirely sure but again it's not quite as urgent for the reasons we've we've just mentioned in addition to that yeah same old problems really mate obviously we're coming up to a point where Olive Porter's junior's contract is likely that he's going to opt into that which puts us in a little bit of a difficult situation Uh, salary cap wise potentially and that time whether we'll look to move him on or not is still a little bit unclear a little bit of an aside here I suppose but former Chicago Bulls Uh, Jamal Crawford has revealed recently in an interview that he is likely to or contemplating retirement as soon as next season so yeah three times six man of the year is potentially going to be the last time we see him which again is uh, another crazy thing because he still looks about 18
1: absolutely the guy doesn't age it's absolutely crazy a fan favourite for us both I think bro obviously he played for the Knicks as well as the Bulls a serviceable and really really good player off the bench great player I think that he'll be missed I I still think that he can and will be able to contribute if a team do decide to pick him up at some stage but if not I wish him all the best in retirement uh, like you say he will be missed just a little a bit about my New York Knicks. As reported by the New York Post, the Knicks were the only one of eight teams to miss an NBA conference call Thursday that proposed bringing the non-Orlando clubs to a Chicago bubble in September for voluntary mini-camps and scrimmages. According to a source, the Knicks were preoccupied with coaching interviews Thursday. The source said that the call was for the league's general managers and Scott Perry was committed to pre-scheduled video interviews. ESPN subsequently reported Jason Kidd and Will Hardy were interviewed they are two of 11 Knicks coaching candidates with the decision expected later this month. The Knicks' absence from the call should not be considered opposition to the entire Chicago project. According to the source, however, it's unclear why the Knicks did not ask for another operative to monitor what was a preliminary call. Obviously, Jason Kidd has an impressive playing resume, Jay. 10-time All-Star, five-time first NBA All-Team and 2011 NBA Champion. He's currently an assistant coach for the Los Angeles Lakers and he is well acclimated to the New York market having played for the Knicks in 2012 and coached the Nets in 2013. Will Hardy is currently assistant coach for the Spurs. A contrasting background and although unknown on the national scale, is well regarded within the Spurs organisation. Reported by Woj, at 32, Hardy has been with the organisation for a decade, beginning as an intern before becoming an assistant coach and eventually moving on to the team's bench. Uh, I'm a little bit intrigued, Jay, by the youth and unknown entity that is Will Hardy. The shortlist for the head coaching role includes a variety of names such as Mike Woodson, Mike Brown, Kenny Atkinson, and the aforementioned Tom Thibodeau, as well as more to be revealed.
0: I mean, you know my opinion, mate.
1: Kind of spoken about it numerous times. If we are able to attain a level of Tom Thibodeau, I would be happy with that. Equally, if we do go for the unknown entity in Will Hardy, who perhaps would be orientated and gravitated to a younger core, I'm happy with that as well, man. We're just waiting to see what happens. At this stage, of everything going on, I just want people to be happy, safe, And hopefully we do get some level of normality, you know, as we've kind of spoken about with the premiership and other sports sort of kicking off. You just hope that people stay safe. And I have like really, really enjoyed the the sporting component being back on the TV. I'm just trying to fill the void of no basketball in my life. I'm watching a lot on the tablet just as a compromise. But as soon as the basketball is back, mate, the football will be gone. There will be nothing else. It will just be basketball all day long. (laughs)
0: it's <laughs> pretty much what happens for us every year isn't it we watch about three Absolutely. football games then we're like ah that's enough Move, moving on to BBL just before we introduce Sam obviously there's a few updates going around at the moment with the fact that the London Lions have had their entry confirmed to the Basketball Champions League for 2020-21 which is really cool and, and really great to see obviously after the conversations that Sam has had with some of the BBL owners specifically obviously with Corley as well the Majority owner, I believe, of the Lions. And seeing Ovi and, and Justin Robinson play in those level of games will be really great to see. Obviously, those two have played at that level many, many times before, but to see them in the Lions jersey compete in the European stage will be will be great. Sam, as we mentioned, has put a lot of effort into kind of uncovering what the process is for a team to compete in the basketball champions league and spoke with obviously Russell Levinson about the Lester riders and their experience when doing that. And obviously the money that's involved and how all all the logistics works. So hopefully lots of lessons to be learned from, from, for the lions, from those guys. So it will be a very successful project. And I think that the project itself was, and and entering the Basketball Champions League was a prerequisite for funding new funding partners who have just invested quite heavily in the club. Since then, obviously, a couple of other things. As an aside, we've had yet another funding request rejected, this time from central government to help bail out the BBL due to loss of revenue as a result of COVID-19. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on with Sam. There's also been a new appointment for Basketball England. Claire Wardle has stepped down and will be replaced by Matt Neville. With the media effect. And I think there's a bit of mixed reaction from the basketball community on that higher obviously he's another person that doesn't have a basketball specific background say what you will of that and then on the, the women's side Temi has gone to the Raya Venzalia, I think is how you pronounce it An Italian side so I should really know that obviously from the, the WNBA side the Minnesota Lynx an interesting move there I think it was partly to do with personal reasons Sam again may be able to give us some more information on that shortly just to recap on Sam before we induce him Hoosvix was founded in January 2010 and since then has become the largest British basketball website in the country. It's provided an array of basketball coverage that you won't find in traditional press, covering everything from BBL and WBL to GB basketball, MBL, and even Brits playing college abroad. He also hosts the Hoot Six All Star Classic on a yearly basis, which showcases the best of the best in the junior ranks in this country, at least, and it's hosted at Brixton Rec Centre, which is a very historic gym for basketball in this country. It's annoying that I that I live so far away. I've only actually been able to get down to one and that was last year on the boys event and missed out on the, the women's on the three-point contest on the saturday but hoping that in years ahead i'll be able to go again in addition to obviously all of the things that sam does we've just mentioned he also has a keen interest in business specifically marketing and comms and so we, he has funded hootswix with various aspects of advertising but it's mo- mostly down to his or has been freelance work to kind of help add that out he has a new SaaS platform so software as a service platform which i believe is. Is playing its part as well, and then we'll, we'll talk about more that uh, more in a bit, as well as his Patreon account, just you know, to help to get help from people in the community, uh, in the organisations that, that run Barcelona's country as well, and. Uh, you know, as as we've talked about, Mark, I don't think the impact of what Sam has done, uh, you know, overstated really, you know, you speak to anyone close to the basketball community in this country, and they'll know Sam's name, they'll know his work. And as you as you rightly mentioned, I think when you're looking for well-sourced information about British basketball, the chances are you're going to go to either Sam, the the NGAs, or MVP, i.e. Mark Woods. So, welcome, Sam Nita. How you doing, man? It's good to see you again.
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a long time coming. I know that I've kind of put put it off for a long time and been like, can we reschedule, can we reschedule, can we reschedule? But uh, <laughs> yeah, finally we've made it happen. So I appreciate you having me.
0: No, thank you for coming on, man. I know you've, you, yeah, exactly. You've been up to a lot of different things and, and very busy. I guess uh, give us a little bit of a breakdown of what, what things have been like for you in the last few months, because I know everyone's had to kind of adjust a little bit, shall we say? <laughs> if, if things have been particularly easy to kind of move over? And obviously because you're predominantly... Um, on online, I suppose. Obviously, you don't have the live sport, but you know you're doing a lot more podcasts and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty challenging. Uh, not going to lie. I mean, from from a well, from a, from a time perspective, I've got time on my hands. Um, but from a life earning a living perspective, uh, things are a, a little bit more challenging. Kind of compounded by the fact I only got back into the country. I moved back to the country in December, so it's kind of like. Getting back here and then trying to get everything rolling again in terms of like clients and sort of getting my feet and getting a place to live and and it, and it was kind of just when Everything started looking like it was being sorted out. I moved into a place in uh, end of January, signed a couple of clients, February, and started having a lot of other stuff getting lined up for the summer coming. Obviously, then COVID hit and, and it's all wiped out the whole lot. So obviously, I've cancelled my event. We had a summer league schedule with UEL for the first time. I oh, don't even know if I'm allowed to say UEL, but we we were, we were doing a, a summer league with UEL, which wasn't announced, but that was scheduled in for the end of the summer, which had to be cancelled. And then freelance stuff that I had lined up for various different events, basketball stuff, obviously that's all been cancelled. So yeah, it's uh, not been the best and I'm kind of in a situation now of just trying to assess the best way of moving forward because I think the way things are going, I can't see any semblance of normality returning to basketball until at least 2021. So from a personal standpoint, that means I need to sort of adapt and do other things I think and potentially, well, I've even over the last sort of few weeks i've taken on some clients outside of basketball for the first time in you know a long time because yeah it's adapt or die right and i'm not willing to go down with the ship so yeah i'm doing everything i can to make sure that you know i'm in a strong position to ensure that it doesn't well ideally doesn't affect me too bad
0: second that i think yeah mark and myself are kind of not not in similar positions but um you know in our own working lives we've we've kind of had a similar similar experience i'm sure many many people have um recently but to go back on that in terms of where you were before am I right in thinking you were Switzerland Switzerland way is that completely wrong I thought you were somewhere around there
2: yeah I was in in Switzerland Um, I was actually working for FIBA I took I took a job I took a day job for the first time in about eight nine years so I started with them in May of last year they're obviously a, a client of mine before and there was a position uh, open as their social media coordinator. And one of the guys that I dealt with there, Rina kind of contacted me about it and said, you know, we've got this position, like if you want to apply or whatever. So I applied, not really necessarily thinking at that point that I was going to take the job or that I really wanted to take the job. I've always been very, um, Motivated to want to do my own thing, be my own boss. I value my freedom pretty highly and I value working on things that I want to work on pretty highly. But yeah, push came shove. You know, I did the interview, they flew me out there. It was pretty cool. Obviously, working for FIBA, the experiences that be available would be pretty awesome. I feel like things that I could learn, I'll be able to bring back to the British game. Long story short, the reality is it's the money, right? Like financial stability, security. Like I'm in a place, well, especially start of last season, I was in a bit of a situation where three of my clients that I'd have for a long time, I lost them all at the same time without really any sort of prior warning. And so as a result, I kind of went into the season without the sort of the regular contracts that I have. So the season was a bit of a struggle financially. And so this kind of offer came and it was just like, yeah, actually, maybe this is what I need to That's do. Right. Um, they, they were willing to make an amendment to my employment contract so that I was allowed to carry on doing hoops fix and stuff on the side which was one of my sort of preconditions if I was going to do it because I wasn't willing to give everything up. And yeah, they were super accommodating of me, basically. So yeah, I accepted the job, moved out there. Yeah, gave up my place here fully, all moved. And then pretty early on, I was just like, I don't think I can do this. Like I'm coming to an office every day, you know, office politics sort of just having a boss having like just sure, that sure structure where like i just so used to having my freedom and just being like yeah this is what i want to do and i just can't do it and there's obviously processes that need to be followed and just i just i struggle with adapting to it and then also just being in switzerland kind of on my ones where very much my life is focused around basketball here and being kind of unattached disattached unattached unattached from um from the game, I found it was basically like I was living in Switzerland but still trying to act like I was living in London. And it didn't I was flying back regularly, like regularly. I was coming back almost every other weekend or whatever. It was it was tough, it was a tough uh situation for me. I went to the under nineteen women's world cup in, in Thailand, went to the under nineteen, men's world cup in in Greece. And then I told them before my probation was up that I'm, you know, I don't think this is working out. I kind of just miss my doing hoops fix and doing my british basketball stuff and kind of the freedom of freelance and, and everything else it's nothing nothing personal against against fiba or, or or anything like that but i didn't want to screw them over because obviously the world cup was coming up and so i said I, I want to tell you before we go before we go to china because i don't want to come to china quit afterwards and then you think i've only come here to come to the world cup and then leave and kind of leave on bad terms and stuff so if you don't if you don't want to take me to china i don't have to come to china i'm fully prepared to leave before the world cup and they were just like well you know it's it's, it's too the world cup was i don't know a month away, six weeks away. It was kind of like it's too late to replace you. Like we'd really appreciate if you come, and we can discuss your departure date on on your return. So yeah, came back, uh, went to China, came back in September, October time, and then kind of we sat down and we agreed that I would stay until December, and then December I would I would leave. So that that's basically what happened. So yeah, I came back into this country in December, but yeah, like I was saying at the start of this, it was like. The clients that I did have when I took the FIBA job, I told them, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm taking a job, so I won't be able to have, do the commitment that I've kind of had to you for however, however long. And so I was replaced by other clients that I'd had. And as a result of that, well, coming back mid-season, when most, you know, within the basketball world, pretty much any type no, of contract that I have mm-hmm. it's, it's you sign for the season right you, the agreement is generally over the course of the season so it was hard to just it's hard to pick stuff up in the middle, middle of the year so coming back in the, well coming back in December it's dead for Christmas first of all you know like over that first month like I mean in retrospect I didn't even think about it but what I should have said is if if I'm going to stay until December, I'm going to stay until January, like because at that point there's no point me coming back in December. Like it's just a wasted month; it's a dead month. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They yeah. probably they probably thought the same thing, right? Because there's Christmas holidays that I get paid for and everything else. So it goes it goes both ways. So yeah, came 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 back and then kind of getting readjusted and sort of working out next moves and stuff. But yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it's definitely not been easy and trying to work out the the best route forward to make my make myself financially sustainable, viable has been the ongoing challenge for however many years, you know. But I'm Embracing it, welcome to it. I've got to remember the grass is always greener. You know, when I'm doing this, I'm always thinking, oh, would it be proper cushy to be at FIBA right now and be on that regular salary, you know, and just showing up to work, clocking in, clocking out. But instead, I you know, I remember that this is what I want to be doing. I value my freedom more than I value money. I value working on things that I want to work on more than I value money. So it's kind of, this is what I want to be doing. I've just got to be a bit smarter in terms of working out the financial side of things, for sure.
1: I mentioned it before, prior to recording. But yeah, just wanted to say that um, you've kind of been the main source of information and outlet for me uh, in terms of raising awareness for the British game. I'm very much a, a Nick's head. Uh, an MBA guy growing up in the sort of nineties with my dad. And that was kind of my first experiences, but really, yeah, just again, thank you for coming on and and to share those experiences. And, and, you know, me and Jay both think you're doing a smashing job. And I know that COVID permitting is having to change a lot of things in terms of how we work and our resources and stuff, but I really hope that you can continue to do what you're doing, bud, and and keep up the good work, man.
2: No, no, I really appreciate that for sure. And, you know, yeah, I mean, even with COVID, like, if I, even if I have to go and get a job, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop doing any of this. You know, at, at one point in March when I started panicking a bit and then like I feel like I was a bit ahead of the curve in terms of seeing it coming compared to when other people were talking about it. I'd sort of pretty much, I had one friend that was obsessed with what was going on in China. and it was like this flu, this, this flu thing is coming. like, you know, be aware of it and was kind of sending me links and stuff. And then I was just kind of keeping on top of it a little bit. I mean, in March, I, I ended up applying for when everyone was hoarding at the supermarkets at that point i was like this is about to get nuts so i applied for like i don't even know about 30 different jobs at supermarkets on the 30 day rolling contracts cuz so i'll do what i'll do what i need to do to survive you know but all of it every job that i applied for is, is part time hours so that i can i've got enough money to pay my bills but then i've got the, the time around it to keep doing all the hoops fix stuff you know so it's like i don't ever see a situation i mean it could change obviously but i don't see a situation that I would give up and stop doing this unless maybe it wasn't necessary. That's the only real situation where it's like, well, actually if if the game grew so much, there were so many media outlets and stuff. And I didn't feel like it was a thing that was really providing value anymore, maybe in that situation. But otherwise I kind of feel like, um, this is where I'm best placed to have an impact in terms of my skill set and my knowledge, and kind of what I enjoy doing, and it's what I want to do. So I kind of feel like it's my my life's work, my life's purpose. I know that sounds a bit cheesy, woo woo, but um, I genuinely feel like that, that way.
0: 100, man. I think um, it was quite interesting to see your thoughts on Joe Rogan and what he did with Spotify recently. And again. Just, just following that side, and uh, obviously your thoughts on there about the independent side related pretty, pretty strongly to what what you're just talking about. But to go to go back a bit, I think you know when we when we first met in those, the you know I think it was like 2013, wasn't it? You, know, you were talking about how, in terms of your schedule compared to say like nine to five job with fever I think from memory, you were getting up pretty. You were getting up at like four a.m. or something, and you were doing, you were grinding out for. A certain amount of hours at that point and then you had you know the time to do your workouts and everything else and keep pretty consistent but I mean, again i don't know many people that do that and just wondered if you if you're still keeping that regime and obviously it was that then hard obviously to go to a nine-to-five job because you're so ingrained in this was how my life was for you know best couple of a decade yeah i
2: mean in terms of transitioning to a nine-to-five thing the most difficult thing about it was the fact that i had to be in a certain place for a certain time and that was the measure of me being at work, you know, where I know for a fact based on not only my own position, but contractors that I've worked with, it makes no difference where someone is. It's, it's about the quality of the work they produce. And I think one of the things that this, this lockdown has shown is that a lot of, I think a lot of companies are going to start going to work from give, employees the option of working from home and remote work is going to become a much bigger thing because I actually you realize well you can get a lot of work done and and for people's lifestyles it means that they don't have to waste 2 hours a day commute well at least 2 hours a day commuting somewhere but yeah in terms of my own routines like still like that, I've always been an early bird like since I was I don't even know like as as young as I can remember when I was 15 16 years old and thought I was going to the NBA I was getting up at five six o'clock in the morning to do press-ups and ups and run on the south downs and all that kind of stuff and yeah now like this morning I actually woke up earlier than usual this morning I woke up at half four I was training at five o'clock trained till six hold shower shave my head little bit give the beard a little shape up on the top and the, and the neck um and then sound I might
0: May. this on mark, mate. That's
1: like mark does, I think.
2: <laughs> and then every
1: bald man knows
2: yeah exactly gotta keep it smooth man um and then, uh, yeah, and then I then I go and I, I cook my food. I'm kind of, I experiment a bit with my diet and stuff, and I've been doing one meal a day for for a little while now. So I cook my, I cook my food, and I eat at 7 o'clock in the morning, like a pretty big meal, rice, chicken, uh, vegetables, and a big salad. And then I start working. So I start working about seven thirty, eight o'clock, and I pretty much, that's what I do until I go to bed. <laughs> that is basically it, all day, every day, especially during a lockdown where, you know, you don't even have the option to, to be social, and, and sort of meet up with friends and stuff Is in that way I've probably my ba- the balance is even worse than it normally is
0: yeah that's a, it's, it's a tricky thing isn't it of turning off especially when in, in the freelance realm again I was about to say you know my, my next question was around sort of it being a very difficult time for sport in general obviously how you've had to adapt but you, you've kind of covered that already so I think we'll we'll go further into Hootsvics specifically and basketball in the UK I don't think a huge amount of people appreciate necessarily like the knowledge you have in terms of, sort of marketing and comms and the kind of work, as you've mentioned already, that you do for FIBA and Cut the Net, which I, I believe is the name of your own arm um, of who Fix. Could you give us like a quick overview? Obviously, when you're in a social media perspective, we'll kind of understand what that involves. But in terms of Cut the Net, you know how, how wide does that go? Because I think you cover everything from video production to your clients to you've got your own SaaS platform, so software as a service platform and you know all of the other things that I suppose you do for the BBL. Can you give us like a, an overview, I guess, of, of what that in, entails? Because um, obviously everyone knows about what you do at Hootspicks. Um, I don't necessarily know that we, we all know you know what you do in the background.
2: Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I position it as an agency. Obviously, it's not an agency. It's, it's pretty much me. And then if, if there are bigger contracts that I can use subcontractors for, I'll bring other people in uh, depending on what it is. But ultimately, that is what, what all of the business runs through cut the net is the the company that the everything that actually brings in money uh, goes through so work with basketball teams and organizations around their digital content strategy that can be writing that can be photography videography obviously i've been i've been actually considering recently about trying to get more into the event side of things also just just do general consultancy around british basketball doesn't happen a lot but obviously there are brands sometimes that are sniffing around and trying to understand the market and trying to understand kind of how they can be best placed if they're going to try and make a move within it. And generally I'll get that call and we'll sit down and I'll just pick my brain really. It's, I mean, for me, it's not particularly difficult work because I know it all anyway. Right. So yeah, that's, that's basically how it works. Got my fingers in a few different pies, like Mason, the software as a service platform, which hasn't quite gone as I would have hoped. But at this point, seeing as I'm a couple of years in now, but uh, actually, during during this period, I'm um, sort of working with someone, potentially bringing in a technical co-founder because the barriers that I always get to a technical and obviously me being non-technical, I'm also trying to code at the moment. That's one of my sort of big projects of this year. I'd like to be able to build software products. I think that's that's the way things are going. And especially from a I always say British basketball is very technology poor. I don't think we've got good technological solutions to pretty much anything. And I don't think we've got people position people in, in positions that can make those decisions that know really what they're doing. So the outputs that we see to solve certain issues normally are just trash and i feel i've got a few different things that i'd like to do uh, that i'd like to build myself just as projects and i don't even necessarily that a lot of them probably wouldn't even wouldn't even charge for it's just stuff that i think would make a big difference to allowing people to play basketball grow basketball grow the game here so yeah that's that's basically it
0: that's cool man i suppose in, just in terms of like how how mason works am I, am I correct in thinking in terms of a lot of it is around sort of a a allowing a kind of non non-designer person to kind of come in and and um make a lot of different social graphics with essentially a i suppose a canva type thing for marketing yeah out there. that's um, exactly yeah basically cool. ba- yeah. basically
2: is we take we take photos like you know i'll before mason i'd work with clients would get speak to a designer get a, a photoshop document created with a bunch of different layers that then would they'd have to edit obviously that leads to a lot of different situations where you've got someone that doesn't know photoshop you've got someone that doesn't have photoshop or you they just mess it up and they try and it gives them too much control they try and change colors and just it just gets dodgy so um essentially taking those psds turning it into a into an html css file which is uploaded to a dashboard and it's fixed uh, all of the logos of the teams that are in the league are already loaded in so they can click their opposition, and it comes up. They don't need to do anything, so it's basically quicker, uh, more efficient, and also hopefully improves the design quality standard of the stuff they're putting out. But yeah, it's it's still very early stage. And what I'm hoping is, if me and this guy end up coming to an arrangement, we can really start accelerating things forward. But obviously, with the way sport is at the moment, you know, I, I think this is just the beginning of, of how bad it's going to get. I really am not that optimistic for for sport in the near future for sure
1: we've seen a second the uh, spikes here and there we were just talking obviously uh, previously about the NBA and, that, and the state of that at the minute in terms of the bubble idea and you've already got guys testing positive and I know that Jay is the same mindset that we we're just it's raising a lot of red flags for us and there's concerns and obviously we love sport it entertains us and it, it gives us a lot of joy but ultimately, it's about the players and people being safe. Um, and that's kind of the main priority that's, you know, that's paramount at the end of the day. And I am, I'm, I'm with you. I, I want to be optimistic about it, but I do share concerns that I don't think we're out of the woods by any means. And I just hope that we can get past it safely and we can eventually get to some degree of normality soon, man. But we'll see.
2: Yeah, well, 100%. It's, I mean... You look at the impact that it's already having internationally. Uh, I, I was tweeting out some stuff recently about, you know, player salaries being cut 40, 50 percent. You know, projected sponsorship revenues in a number of different European leagues are, are down 40 percent protected for this season. I mean, college, college athletics in the States is going to be absolutely decimated if the college football season doesn't run which we should i think normally start pre-season normally starts in july but like if that doesn't run which that is generally the big revenue generator for entire athletics departments it's going to cause major issues we've already seen you know there's a couple junior colleges that british guys actually went to previously um gillette and sheridan have announced they're completely cutting the athletics program you know uconn have, have announced certain sports are, uh, are going to be shut down from from their athletics, uh, department as well so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy, and this is yeah very much very much the beginning, in my opinion. It's gonna be a rough times ahead for sport, which is yes comes back to what we were saying at the start about like got to adapt. You know, I think if people don't adapt, then uh, they're gonna struggle.
0: I'm certainly agree, man. And I, I suppose moving back a bit in terms of you know your introduction to the game and basketball in general, uh, when did when did that first start, and kind of who who, who inspired you? I suppose like did you have like a BBL team early on. Did you have an NBA team as a kid? Like, what, what did that picture look like for you?
2: So I grew up on the streets of Eastbourne, uh, down on the southeast coast, which is kind of near Brighton. For that's- most people's reference point but it's known as god's waiting room so very very aged population essentially i wasn't really into a lot of sports growing up oh well, i wasn't really into any sports growing up i was into skateboarding actually was my first thing uh but uh, basketball way. basketball was the one sport i ate i had a natural i could always shoot properly for example i always had the technique to be able to shoot properly. i kind of had a natural affinity for and so i had some friends that played at break times there was like i don't know 15 of us trying to play with one ball and uh, you know one break time he got annoyed and he was just like why don't you go and buy your own basketball and I was like yeah why don't I go and get my own basketball so I went to went to sports sport and soccer I think it was cool back then uh I got a Charlotte Hornets uh, rubber spalding ball and that was that was my first ball and that was kind of like the early sort of stages of falling in love with it and then the real thing that, that changed it was me and my dad built a hoop in my back garden so I had access all the time from the moment I had the hoop like that was it like I spent the entire summer playing and then by the time I got back to school I was like, oh, I'm Pretty evil right now. Like, and let me just put this into context. Like, in my head, in the context of my school in Eastbourne, I was good. In yeah. the grand scheme of things, you know, like, I wasn't good. And uh, we can all
0: relate to that, mate. We can all relate to that. I
2: did a call with Sussex Stormer. Uh, they, they've been doing sort of weekly Zoom calls with their players. And Danny Hildreth, a coach down there, asked me if I could come on and just kind of speak about who's fix or whatever. It's just a private thing. It wasn't public or anything. And uh, they asked me about kind of my start of, of playing basketball. And I started. I, well, I was talking for like 10, 15 minutes and I was like, I'm really invested in the idea trying to prove that I was a good basketball player. I need to just give it up and recognize that actually I, I wasn't that good. Like, I played, played at school. I loved it. It was my life, like my, totally my life. Genuinely, genuinely thought I was going to the NBA and no one would tell me otherwise. Like I wrote an essay for my English teacher, which I probably still got somewhere at home. I, I remember the last sentence was something along the lines of, you will see me on TV one day, like playing in the NBA, you know, like no one could tell me that I wasn't going to the NBA. And I mean, I couldn't even shoot a weak handed layup, you know, went to college, still played college. I played, there was no nearest national league club was was far away. So too far to go. So just played local league. Uh, there's a guy named, guy named Marcy, who's from Congo and he was my coach. Ran these sessions, uh, ran a club, South Coast Dreams. It was called, um, he called himself the dream <laughs> <Marcy> the dream. <laughs> That's, that was it. Like, you know, we had seafront basketball courts down, down Eastbourne. And then there was a park, Guildridge Park that we'd play at, And that was, that was my life. I uh, went to university. Well, original plan was to get a scholarship. There was a, there was a website, there was a company, which I think still exists called college prospects of America, UK, CPOA, UK.com. I think was a website or something, something like that. And I sent them a letter being like, you know, I really want to get to the States. Like, can you help me? And, they said that to academically be eligible, I need to do a social science. I didn't have like a social, like sort of like a, a geography or history kind of GCSE, mm-hmm. I think. So I did my, like, this is me, my whole life was dedicated around making, going to going to college in the States and trying to make the MBA. You know, I did a, at college, I did a geography AS level just to be able to become academically eligible for even though I didn't even have any scholarship offers or any interest from any American schools, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Obviously finished college, no sign of me going to the States. So I was like, well, I'll go to the university in the UK. I went to Brunel, which <clears throat> the year I went, I initially went 2004. It was, they were the, they were the fourth. They finished, just finished fourth in the country at that point. And as a, they didn't have scholarships or anything like that, but as a sort of organic basketball program, they were one of the, the better ones in that kind of era. And I liked the idea of being in London. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to Brunel. So I went to Brunel. I got to campus and I found out that they only practice twice a week. And I was like, I'm trying to make the NBA. Like, how am I going to make the NBA if we're only practicing twice a week? And then I was like, okay, well, I'll find a court to work out. There's no basketball court on campus. And I was just like, I don't understand. Like, this is just ridiculous. And I mean, this is, this is how... Crazy focused I was I dropped out like I genuinely dropped out of uni I've still got the email to my lecturer that I sent I was there for six weeks and I dropped out after six weeks in large part because there was no basketball court on campus and I couldn't practice and couldn't train and couldn't like pursue my dream I've very much always been like people should follow their dreams and do what they want to do and that's kind of always just been ingrained in me from a very young age so I dropped out, went home and I kind of, ha- I've been having injury. I'm telling you my whole life story here, but I've been having problems with injury. And so I had plantar fasciitis, had some issues with tendinitis. So I ended up staying at home for a year, sort of working out, trying to rehab. And I think sort of after that year, I started to realize that maybe I'm not going to the NBA after all. And then Brunel contacted me a year later and were like, you def- I deferred entry, I didn't actually Drop out, drop out, deferred entry for a year. So they were like, Your place is here if you want to come back. And I was just like, Well, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I might as well go back. So I went back to Brunel, did my sports science degree, played there for three years. I played the second team, which again, like that pained me. Like I couldn't make the first team. I was just like, this is just unbelievable. And I'm not even going to tell. How many them. teams
0: do they have, Sam? Was it was it like just two teams, and that was it? There was, there, it there,
2: a... there was just two. And this is this is exactly where I got drawn in with with Sussex Storm because I feel like I have to tell this story to try and give myself some level of leg- legitimacy as a player.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but ba- basically, they had they had two teams. Uh, the second team was the highest ranked second team in the country. So the second team played so... in played in one A, which was the league below the Premier South. The coaches would be like because I would speak to them and be like kind of, you know, obviously I think I'm good enough to the first team type thing. And it would be like, well, ultimately if you play for the first team, you're not going to play a lot and we need to spread the talent because we want to keep the second team good. So either right. you can be one of the main men on the second team or you'd be a bench one on the first team. And in, like, there's part of me that kind of like, well, I want, I would rather be on the first team just to be able to say I'm on the first team. But obviously <laughs> in retrospect, like, of course I'd rather, you know, I ended up captaining the second team and, and like, yeah. and being their guy that was playing, you know, a lot of, a lot of minutes. Um, and so, through that time, so that I need to tell this story as well. Just this is one of my last. This gonna be my last piece on my basketball ability. <laughs> so obviously, through the three years at university, I did like I I hated being on. I hated having to tell people I was on the second team. Like, it was embarrassing to me. Like because I I took great pride in playing basketball and it was a big part of my life. Final year, I think I, I went to the final eights with the first team in my second year. Because they just they just wanted like an extra man on the bench or whatever, so I went you know didn't play a lot. And finally, it was the same thing. I think they they called me up for the first team for, for the final eight, which was in Sheffield. So the first practice I don't know, it was like morning practice, seven o'clock in the morning, and I went there. Yeah, basically as a basketball player, the one thing I could do was shoot. Like I was a very good shooter, and I still would put myself up against most people and believe that I could beat them in a shooting competition. And that practice, like I went in and I swear it was like. I mean, I absolutely killed it. Like, could not miss a thing. Like, curling off screens, running, running back screens, whatever. Like, just coming off them, hitting uh, down the baseline, top of the key, whatever. Whatever I was receiving, catch and shoot it was like wham, 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 and it was like this moment of vindication for me that after three years, I am good enough. And everyone knew it was like it was like everyone knew that I like done a very good job. But no one really said anything until I then went to see my my second team coach later that He was one of my lecturers. I went to see him later on in the afternoon in the open hours session. And he was like, oh, like Pete Deppish, who's a, a quite big, famous American basketball player who's the co- who was the first team coach. He was like, oh, I spoke to Pete. I heard you absolutely kill practice this morning and inside i was just like you've got no idea how happy that makes me that like that is literally that is just the icing on the cake that's just what i need and now i can never have to play again and that was basically the last time i like last time i played competitively was was at brunel since then i've just played recreationally with friends so yeah sorry i've Got no, way way no, too no, defensive no, no. about my basketball ability but yeah that's that's basically <laughs> I'm, it.
1: I'm I'm intrigued to ask Sab not to reopen any wounds mate but what were you averaging?
2: <laughs> oh mate do you know what I, I don't even know like I we did I don't even well we didn't even have proper stats. Like I would have yeah, I would have guessed I would have guessed over my, my university career like probably about fifteen a game. Like nothing nothing even crazy you know
1: do you, um, what would you say was your favourite basketball moment in regards to your playing days?
2: Hmm Well, the one that's probably sticks out was actually at college. Like, we reached some type of we reached some type of final. I can't like some type of like county final or like schools type of thing. And I had like I think I had I finished with like thirty four. I think I had twenty six in the first half, and that was like pretty. I don't know. I had been injured for a little while beforehand, so I hadn't played for a while. So like, yeah, that one sticks out. Brian Bears camp, which I went on for a week. That was just like living and breathing basketball. Like I loved it. Like that was Nick Nurse was coaching. Randy Duck, like Bud Johnston, who was 17 year old, 18 year old at the time, but was on the end of the bench with the Brian Bears. But yeah, that that whole week, and then just and just playing with friends. Like you know, during the summers, like that was all we did. Like every day, like outside in the sun, just playing. Yeah, I got so many fond memories of it, and that's you know, that's one of the reasons I love doing what I do now. Like it's the game has given me so many beautiful moments in my life that I will always treft forever and uh, you know anything I can do to get more people involved with it to encourage other people to get involved with it so it can do the same thing for them like I'll, I will happily take that on you know.
0: Really cool to hear man because uh, yeah again we've all we all have those memories right like every one of us that's kind of come up and you know man no matter what kind of our playing ability was like we all have those similar memories playing in the summer playing in summer leagues doing all that stuff so yeah it's just cool to Cool to hear your story, mate. Definitely moving moving back to HoopsFix. In terms of early days, there, like for Fix, you had the Back British Basketball campaign, right? You had the bus, you had all that stuff, like, and that was with Silky, I think your friend's name. Yeah, so so um, so
2: yes. It's for context, like Back British Basketball was actually three months after I started HoopsFix. Um, oh, oh, sorry, my bad. It was, it was the other way around. So uh, the first the first thing was on Brawl. So so my original plan was, well. My original, I don't want to give you, I talk too much. I'm trying to keep this short and succinct. My original plan was uh, I wanted to run late night scrimmages for kids, to keep them off the street. At the time, there was a lot of talk in the press about knife crime and whatever. So I was like, cool, you know, I'm going to set up these late night scrimmages. There was, i seen some feature on, on basketball in Chicago and they'd basically done their own type of version of this and it reduced, it reduced gun crime in the area by X amount because they opened up a gym until you know, 2, 3 in the morning at the weekends or, or something like that. So I basically wanted to replicate that model. And I was like, oh, well, how will I get people to find out about the scrimmages I'm going to run? Well, having a website and I had a background at university, I'd launched an unofficial students website. And that was kind of like my first foray into sort of the online digital space. So I was like, set up a website and the website would have like cool video content on articles. And off the back of that, people will that will get traffic people will then see that i'm running these scrimmages and that will make people come to the scrimmages so yeah i went to a few events that summer i actually learned this only about two three weeks ago i've always i've always on record until now said that the first tournament i filmed was future stars 2009 it actually wasn't that was the first international tournament i filmed the first uh basketball event i filmed was actually a sort of all-star game called street to elite it was run by a guy named mike baptiste in it was run in enfield um had a bunch of guys now that are sort of pros playing in it. Rob Gilchrist played in it. Uh, Mike Martin, uh, Tintin Watts, um, yeah, Perry Lawson, like kind of all all these guys. So that, yeah, like I filmed, basically filmed this stuff, put it on YouTube under the name Don't Brawl uh, and yeah, did a few thousand views. People messaged me like, what else are you going to be covering? Like what else are you going to be doing? And I just was just like, well, do you know what? Like maybe actually this is what I need to be doing instead. I never even ended up running a late night scrimmage. But I just thought for me growing up, I had, even though I went to some Brighton Bears games, but I had no idea about the British game. I had no idea that we had players playing in the US college system. I had no idea we had players playing abroad. I had no idea we had players in the NBA. Didn't even know we had a national team. Like, I was just completely disconnected from it. All I knew was basketball in, in East Sussex, like kind of that area. We kind of knew all the top players in that sort of area. And I was like, yeah, this is what I need to do. So sort of January January the 1st, I, I was actually traveling in South America. So I launched Ballroom Brawl. I went traveling in South America for three months and whilst there I was putting together the plan. I, I bought the domain Hoops Fix like a few months earlier without even plans to use it, but I just liked the domain. So I kinda of had it and I was like, yeah, well, I'll just do it under this. And so January the first, two thousand ten, rebranded, launched it as Hoops Fix. Kind of that was like it becoming a media platform, news covering National League, BBL, junior national teams, kind of everything through British basketball. And then I got got a message sort of around March that year from a digital agency called Albion. They're based in Shoreditch and they had a contract with British basketball and they were trying to look at setting up some type of grassroots campaign to grow support for GB games that those that summer. So they had, they had, what was it? It was European qualifying campaign, Eurobasket qualifiers. And it had, the, the whole hook was the London 2012 Olympics. Obviously, basketball was the only, the only sport that the host nation wasn't getting an automatic spot. People was kind of holding it as a carrot and saying, you need to sort out your performance and your structures and all this kind of stuff. And if you do that and we feel like you'll be competitive, we'll then give you the spot. And part of being competitive was qualifying for Eurobasket. So there was a whole thing where it's like, yeah, these are Eurobasket qualifiers, but if this team doesn't qualify for Eurobasket, it will massively impact the chance that they have of being able to play at their own Olympics. So there was a whole hook there. Anyway. I sat down with Albion and they were like this is what we're trying to do you know we want someone to come in and kind of like front it up obviously you run this website I mean I, I didn't know what I was doing I was three months into this do you know what I mean it was just, it was just pure luck pure timing and so and, and Silky got involved actually they were like we want, we want sort of someone that is like funny a good presenter someone that's like yeah got jokes or whatever and I was like yeah there's this guy Silky and I Silky was at the first Street to Elite event that I filmed at and he was on the mic as the MC and he was hilarious and I was like, that is the guy. Like, that is the guy. Yeah, like, bought him in and I was living in uh, Stratford, in well, just down the road from Stratford in Maryland. I was going to their office every day. They were paying me, I mean, it was like minimum wage, basically earning, oh, I, don't, I don't even think it was 200 pound a week. It was, you know, so, something like that. But I was, my job was basically back British basketball. Like it was running around, filming things, uh, working out ways to come up with sort of growing national team support, doing all the stuff we did. I mean, it was, uh, the sun was unbelievable. Like one of the best times of my life. Like we had such a good time, you know, and it was, it was like, I was just getting paid to have fun in, in many ways. Cause it was stuff I enjoyed doing. Me and Silky followed the team around the entire country. We obviously ended up, you know, on a few nights out with the team as well. Like I remember we was in, in, I think it, I think it was in, I'm trying to think where they presented Ben Gordon. Uh, it might be Liverpool or Birmingham but like we're in a nightclub in the evening and it's like Ben Gordon's there Lawal's there and it's just like this is just nuts uh, it was a great summer man like it was a great summer and obviously yeah it allowed me to focus on Hoops fix as well at the same time because that was all part of it like we were heavily promoting back British basketball through through Hoops Fix. I mean looking back on it I, I, I don't think necessarily it made a massive long term difference I would say that it, it kind of raised awareness of it. We did get sort of newspaper slots, TV slots interviewed. I got interviewed on channel four about it, did a few different things and obviously raised sort of general awareness of, of the national team during that period. But yeah, in terms of like actually real world sort of impact, I, I don't know if it, if it made that much of a difference, you know,
0: on, on a uh, yeah, slightly different note, but am I right in thinking that Silky came up with the Deng chant? Is that, was that hit?
2: So the, the chance, if <laughs> you, you watch the film,
0: and not for like seven years, to be fair. But.
2: So the film was obviously part of it. And yeah, for the chanting, we went to a football club with football fans. who we were around there and he...
1: Hang on, is this when you're like driving around in a truck?
2: Yes. Yeah,
1: that's the one. Yes. I have seen it. I have seen yes. it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I I'll I'll tell good. you what, actually, if you that truck, yeah, that was my van. That was my van. Uh, I <laughs> no spent my entire life savings on that van at the start <laughs> of that year. And I had um, spent another... 1,500 quid on getting the qualification that I needed to be able to drive it because it was seven and a half ton. It was 24 foot, seven and a half ton. You can't drive it on a regular car license. It's actually a lorry. Do you know what I mean? They wanted to use it as part of the campaign because they thought it looked great or whatever. So they branded it up, uh, stuck the Rich Basketball sticker on it. And I bought it to London. and I bought it to, to Stratford. And like, I mean, Maryland isn't, the safest uh sort of nicest area and basically it got vandalized a couple of times it had brick fruit front through the windscreen the sidebar got smashed in uh, i assume because they might have thought that like i was living in it kind of on the street or something like that obviously i wasn't and then got to the end of this well got to some point the only reason it was in london was for the campaign like otherwise it was down in eastbourne at my dad's house right so like the only reason it was in london was for this whole campaign and uh, I remember it so clearly. I came out of the house. Every, every morning, I'd come out of my house. I'd look right, look at the van, just to make sure that everything was all right. I looked right and then started walking. And then I was like, hang on a second, look back, and it had gone. And the van got robbed. Oh. Uh, the van got robbed. And, I mean, there's still... If you, if you search through, uh, I'm pretty sure if you do a search on the Hoops Fix Twitter, I'm pretty sure at that point when I was less social media savvy, Pretty sure I made some rude comments aimed at whoever stole my van, uh, through the Hoops <laughs> Fix, through the Hoops Fix account, um, and to this day it pains me because not only did I lose the van, yeah, but the insurance. Bear it in mind, I spent my entire life savings on that van at that point. the The insurance refused to pay out because they said that. It was it was in London, and if I told them it would be in London, they wouldn't have uh, they wouldn't have insured it in the area that I was living. And actually, because I was insured in Eastbourne, but I was like, it's a mobile home, like of course it's not going to stay in the same location. But yeah, so the van got stolen. That still pains me to this day because I love that van. Um, the plan was to move into it and kind of yeah travel around, live in it, cover basketball, kind of live the dream. But unfortunately. Yeah, God had other plans. So, yeah, but nah, great summer. Amazing summer. Like, great memories. Super, super happy uh, part of my life.
0: What, where, like, because Ben Gordon was a, is a weird one, right? Like, he was around, but he never, like, did he ever fully commit? Like, he kind of was in and out, wasn't he, I think? Because he he, did he
2: ever he suit did. up
1: properly? He didn't. He was, I've seen him yeah, in training. He,
2: he, he has suited up he now, but he suited oh. up. He suited up when he was past it. So, he's like, I don't, don't want to be rude, but he suited up after his NBA Post career. Balls, like,
0: balls games. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't was.
2: know I don't know what year it was, but it was like maybe four years ago. Four, oh right. Something like that. He played in a couple of games during the actual the whole point of getting in the passport whatever was around London 2012. We're like nah he never 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 ended up playing.
0: And we didn't we have like Brian Mullins as well at one point where he was like
2: Byron yeah Byron he was Martins another one and cut, I don't
0: know what happened there but I not think he ever actually played.
2: There was another one as well, Azabuki. he was another one there was a there was a few guys. Obviously there's there's a lot of guys with British passports or access to British passports because of wherever they were born because obviously UK's got so many colonies or whatever fortunately well, it didn't happen it would have been interesting if, he'd, if he had suited up and what difference he would have made like I think it would have been well at that point in his career as well it would have been very interesting
0: Oh yeah like he was an absolute gun for the Bulls around that time obviously being a Bulls fan I, I have fond memories of that. In terms of um, the, your journalism side I know you don't necessarily like the tag journalist, and obviously going around at that stage and you're covering the game, you know, the guys that came before you and, and kind of coincided with you at some stages from my side, anyway, being sort of Greg Tanner of K slash basketball 24 seven and MVP magazine, Mark Woods, obviously as well. How much of an impact did they have on, on what you were doing? Obviously, you know, you've done the podcast with Greg and I think you still, you still are pretty um, close with Mark too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, uh, well, Obviously, Street UK was a massive, massive part of my my upbringing. You know, if you want to talk about someone that really was the OG in this game, like it's Greg Tanner. You know, he was he was ahead of everybody, not just in the UK but globally. What Street UK was doing, like they had a global audience, the traffic, the numbers, everything. It was insane. That was the peak Street era with Anwan One and everything else. It was just it was a madness. So yeah for sure like you know massive massive respect for for greg and kind of what he had done and the impact that it had on me as a, as a as a youngster like i had no idea before watching streetball.co.uk that we had the levels of talent that i saw in those videos like i remember seeing a mixtape stefan gill you know five foot seven windmilling in warm-ups and stuff and i'm like what there's a five seven guy in england that can windmill like and it I, and again, for context, in Eastbourne, no one could dunk. Like we would all have contests to try and touch the rim, like you know. So, so even to, to see that, like, was just it was just incredible. And I think, uh, you know, Greg always says that a, a lot of his audience was actually white kids on the suburbs. You know, in the suburbs, like because I think w- because we weren't in London, we didn't see the athletes in the same way. So, so you don't see that level of talent as you would if you you were in London. So yeah, I mean, mind was blown. And then Mark Woods is someone that still to this day I admire greatly he's the real true basketball journalist that's been here since day one and put in the work and produced credible, incredible body of work and also just like super high quality like I've been at stuff with him before and how quickly he can turn something around from an interview to a written piece but not just like slap a few words up like it's beautifully written the story is beautiful like he's an amazing writer so for sure but again like he he's in that situation like the rest of us where it's like trying to balance it basketball with covering athletics cricket whatever and kind of I don't even know if it does cricket, but but doing things that are gonna pay the bills because we kind of all recognize that basketball maybe isn't the best place to be profitable like that but say, say, saying all of that my inspirations when I started I wasn't thinking about those two it was actually uh ball is Life and I was looking to the States uh, and sort of what them two were doing from a YouTube standpoint was like, yeah, it was just crazy. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. I just want to travel around the country, you know, film basketball clip highlights, put it on YouTube and I'm going to grow to a hundred thousand million subscribers. And you know, here we are 10 years later and I'm on 11,000. It's going really well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, mate, like again, like when we first spoke, who's six then, Yeah. You obviously had some of the coverage aspects of like, you know the the GB team and stuff but it was a lot of crossovers a lot of highlights um, especially in the early days i think from from memory like that was kind of your bread and butter wasn't it so that that makes a lot of sense from that uh, you know in the in the podcast you had with greg you were both talking about potential blowback from those highlights of people that aren't necessarily on the uh, the positive end have you had much of that like i suppose it's probably a bit more low key you know, UK side but no, nah, there's, no, there's,
2: there's awesome. plenty, plenty of that I mean I can't <laughs> name the players but I have definitely had angry DMs I've had threats I've had all sorts of, of stupidness Which, uh, and it's not just from players. Sometimes it's parents as well. You know, I've had parents demand that I take stuff down because their son's getting crossed over or or whatever and saying that it's a safeguarding issue and they're going to go to Barcelona, England and blah, 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 you know. (laughs) Um, So it's, uh, yeah, the problem problem with basketball in this country is it's just so small, isn't it? It's it's so, so small. Everyone knows everyone. Like the vast majority of of highlights, especially when I was doing a lot of mixtapes and stuff that I put up, it's like I know all the players that are involved and a lot of them will have my number as well. So like... Uh, you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it can get a bit a bit testy. But then there are other people that take it like a true sport, and why I always try and I always try and remind people if they want to sort of get aggy about something, is that realistically they look at highlights of that has a, that have a victim every single day, and probably share them with their friends. And it just so happens that this time they're on the wrong end of the highlight. Like, you know, be a good sport about it. It's really not the end of the world if you get dunked on or you get crossed. Like, but yeah, for sure there there is being blowed back. Yeah, I remember one particular clip the thing is, uh, like this, obviously, the blooper stuff, it'll always do so well. But generally, we shy away from it because people just get so offended about it. Yeah. But there was one clip where someone was doing a layup on a fast break. And I mean, they were like 20 feet away from everyone, like wide open. <laughs> it was interesting like that there was no one else on the court. And then they really sl- <laughs> they really slowed down as they approached the hoop to almost like overemphasize how easy it is, you know? And then and missed it so bad. And, uh, <laughs> and i was just like i have to put that up and i i think i did some some type of dumb caption like you know when you get overconfident on the break or something like that and yeah the the person he he wasn't happy and and it, i mean <laughs> he <laughs> And, I mean he even he even said that like you know stuff like that is potentially going to cost he was a professional and he was like you know stuff like that is going to cost me a, a pro contract I'm like no it's not Like, it's, yeah. but you know whatever if you're going to get offended like I'll take it down like it's not you know it's not the end of the world it's not, not a big deal for me but um, but yeah there is blowback but I will continue to post and hope that people don't get too in their feelings about it because I think people, that's what people want to see and that's what makes it interesting is what makes it fun
1: Just to admit I do enjoy watching Shackton a Fool I did enjoy watching it and it's exactly the same same principle and concept, but at the same time, I can imagine. he You know, if he wasn't Shaq, he probably. You're not going to argue with Shaq, are you? So he can do what he wants, do you know.
2: What I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, he's even had blowback, isn't he? And the yeah. thing, the thing is, with that, when you talk about taking it to the extremes, like Javale McGee, uh, he genuinely says that he thinks that it's like properly affected his career because he is just painted as a complete low iq player who just constantly makes mistakes and is stupid and of course like no one minds being on one or two but it's like if every single week you're the star of the show it's gonna grate on you a little bit do you know what i mean but yeah i mean we, we need more stuff of that like that's all that stuff creates a culture right it's uh yeah it's necessary for sure yeah,
0: it's definitely part of the game you know one of the ones that stands out again for me is um Stuart tanner david harris um that blew up hugely didn't it and um yeah at the time you know i remember showing friends and stuff and like but he's an nba player and he's a guy in jeans yeah <laughs> I was like yeah yeah i know but he's also like one of the best street we've had in you know what i mean yeah um, look, UK, at, look, but...
2: how, look how devin harris took it like it was a good sport about it he literally said, that, he was like he got me man he got me a fair play to him and he was laughing and joking and it's like and that went viral and it was literally on every single news station all <laughs> over the world um Everywhere. so yeah i mean that's Yeah, all all these guys that say they want to play in the NBA and stuff. I don't even think you could handle a a fraction of the media coverage and scrutiny you would receive. Because if anyone writes anything or says anything or does any type of clip that's remotely critical, they might say you took a bad shot or forced something or whatever. Just uh, so, so sensitive. So, so sensitive.
0: On that note, I guess we'll... We'll move over to the marketing and comms segment. And I guess we've kind of touched upon some of that already. I think the difference, you know, between yourself and a lot of other professional comms people, journalists, marketing professionals is like you're trying to create a culture rather than kind of chase traffic and potentially monetize it that we see with all the time with kind of football, rugby, et cetera, in in this country. Obviously, that's that's no easy task. Like, you know, you're you're building something. I mean, obviously, there's been lots of challenges for that, but like what, what has been the process for that for you and switch us a little bit about how you've done it because you know without a lot of the things you've done in the last decade many many guys in the UK scene right now wouldn't be as knowledgeable as they are on some of the stuff that's happened
2: you, you say like I oh, talk about how you've done it I would say that it's definitely not been done you know like this is an ongoing process that is far from being far from being complete for sure but yeah, the way I approach it is, is thinking about like, what would it take to make people talk about British basketball? And the way that people will talk about British basketball is to have the context about how good someone is or where they rank all time or what they've done. Like, and that's why I, you know, I always bang on about just how important the history is. Like none of us have any clue about the history of the game. And if you don't know about the history of the game, if you're talking about on the administration side of things, you're doomed to repeat yourself. We're going to keep making the same mistakes because we never learn from them. But from an actual game interest perspective, if me and you go to a BBL game, we've never been to a BBL game before and have no idea about who the players are, the game is just like, it's just might as well be a bunch of year sixes playing basketball. Like, it makes no difference, right? But if you go into the game and you know that this is the biggest local rivalry between these two teams, last time they met, them two players fought this player had 45 points. If he, if he, if this guy scores 20, he's going to be move up into the third all time and in the leading table, scorer table. There's all these these narratives, and that's human beings at their very core, right? It's like storytelling. Like that's what that's what captivate, captivates us. That's that's what interests us. So it's really storytelling around 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 the game, and that's kind of like, I guess the the locus of focus if that's even a way of saying it but that's what where we try and focus our activity in terms of what we're doing is like there are certain things we cover that we know will do no traffic no one will care about we do it because we feel like it needs to be done and if we do it enough times we keep ramming it down people's throat they'll start taking notice and then the same like i think well we're kind of we're going to be changing up social strategy sort of very soon with regards to doing a lot more on this day type posts, fact posts, question posts to really try and sort of get the history out there because it's kind of at that point now where it's like we've built the audience almost, ex- well, if we're talking about say Instagram, we've built the audience almost exclusively off, off the back of posting highlights. Now that we've got the audience, it's like, okay, now we can start feeding them other information which again, we know will not do as well engagement wise but actually over time what we hope it will do is sort of generate that interest in the game where people start caring about the domestic game like, you know, people, the, the legends, the players, the stories and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean everything kind of our guiding light is like what's going to help What's going to help grow the culture? What's going to help grow the game? And those are the things that we invest our time in. And when, when we say we, I want to be clear on this. Bradley, Bradley Gaines, my right hand man, he has been down. Like he is literally my everything. And I think I get way too much credit for a lot of stuff that goes on Hoops Fix, which he does. And I just want to make clear that he is a massive part of this. And, we, you know, we will find funny enough. He was originally fighting for, for Mark, was the MVP?
0: i did see something from mark
2: at one point joking about that yeah so and he was he was publishing regularly and he'd done it for a whole season and i was like oh like because generally i get a lot of people reach out to me being like oh you know can I write? i'm like yeah as long as you're going to do a consistent schedule and then you know they disappear they can't do it it's just you know a lot of flakes and he'd done a whole season off his own back and i was like that's really impressive so i reached out to him and i just said would you consider jumping ship if i pay you a little bit of money and he was like yeah i'll have to speak to mark because that's the that's kind of guy Brad is. He's a good guy. Does everything above board. And uh, yeah, and then and then he joined me. And and obviously he's been, oh, he's been with me what, four years now, five years. Kind of and yeah, everything that you see from a hoops standpoint has Brad's involvement in it. We speak every day on Skype. He's heavily, heavily involved. He's just I'm almost like the front facing guy, and he's the behind the scenes guy. But he's just as instrumental to all of the stuff um, that Hoos Fix does as I am, especially on the women's side, which is pretty much all him. And there are times where I'm, I'm probably, I take my foot off the gas a little bit because I'm trying to focus on getting paid or doing a job or whatever. And, then, and he is the one that sees certain things through and makes sure Sure, certain coverage is done. Even, even today, announcing London Lions are going to be in the Basketball Champions League next season. That was all, all him. He took that. If, if it was on me, it wouldn't have been done until tonight because I've got other stuff going on. Mad love for Brad. Like, my, my dream is to get to a place where I'll make enough money that I can put him on a salary full-time. And we're working together on the things that we care about and, and sort of really growing British basketball.
0: It's awesome to see. And yeah, I, I see um, I see snippets that he gets like in nationals and things as well, which is also kind of great to see kind of a little bit uh, maybe related to Poops, bits a little bit outside in some ways. Yeah, but I think, yeah, that leads quite nicely actually to, to the next question. Um,
1: how did you sustain and monetize the website and podcast in the early years? And how does that compare to now? If
2: you, talk about mon- if you talk about monetizing the website directly, it doesn't really make money. Like, I mean, I'll tell you like YouTube probably made about $30 last month advertising you know from we've got like google adsense and we've got a couple of affiliate programs probably makes about another 20 quid a month and then we've got the patreon account which that is up to i think about 200 ish a month 250 a month like and that's that's all of the direct revenue that a website makes like that so so you're talking about what 300 quid at best 300 350 quid at best that the the site makes directly every now and again if i sell direct advertising rather than slapping up. Uh, AdSense, you know, I can sell that for sort of, I sell it much higher because it's such a targeted audience and I generally just say to advertisers it's going to be this much because you're getting 89% UK traffic. They are very, very, very much basketball focused and if that's the audience you're trying to reach, there's no better place to reach it. But yeah, the real way of monetizing it is, is my, well, it's not even monetizing, it's subsidized by my freelance work. <laughs> it's like, it serves as my, it serves as my portfolio that allows me to get inbound leads that people come and say, oh, I saw you did this. How, how can we go about doing the same thing or, or whatever? And then, and then I'll sign a contract with a team and then I use that money to anything that Hoops Fix needs. I, I pay for it basically out of the, well, I run it through company and, and that's what, um, that's what funds everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's, we're trying to change things. Like obviously the, the event, the Hoot All-Star Classic, which I've never taken a penny out of. This year was going to be the first year I was going to pay myself. And that would have been a way of, of also monetizing it, essentially. We'll have to see what happens next year when it, when it comes back and kind of what the financial situation is. But it's my intention to to, to take money out in the future. And then, you know, I think that there's also... Oh, we sell a bit of merchandise, but it's a tiny amount. I'm actually going to be a little push on that over the coming months. But we'll sell your t-shirt like once every, once every month, if that. But yeah, there's, I've always got random ideas, random money-making ideas. There's a few things. I, I had a couple of ideas this morning, actually, which I I literally messaged Brad and I was like, mate, this is 100% what we should do. And I'm going to share it because I don't want to be protected by the ideas because we're probably never even going to do it. But I was like, we should make a card game, a British basketball quiz card game, which is basically testing your knowledge of British basketball. It would be very niche. But if we packaged it really nicely, sold it for a tenner or whatever, I think we could sell a few. I think there's people that would be like, yeah, and it's like, you know, parents that have got kids or whatever, that would help grow the culture, it would help grow the history, and it would be a, it would just be a cool thing to do. Obviously, Brad, Brad, Brad responds with, I love your random money-making ideas that you always come up with, <laughs> because most of them never see the light of day. I definitely have not, worked out the best way of monetizing the audience and i do think just the nature of the audience is hard to monetize anyway and monetizing content is super hard like how many sort of content platforms are really making money uh, especially independent ones that aren't backed with the ability to be able to find massive advertising networks and and a direct line to to big brands and stuff like that so yeah the british parcel market is a super tough one to operate in and something that i am obviously trying to navigate and work out as i go
0: we we've discussed a little bit in terms of like programmatic and potentially how how that can help. I don't know if that's that's been something that, that has kind of boosted it at all. We've we've heard from Bob Hope and one of your recent podcasts sort of how he's kind of been doing the same thing but advertising for the BBL. And I guess yeah, my my question was he has difficulties in attracting sponsors and he's kind of taken through the history of how he'd done that. How how have you found, you know, when it comes to those direct guys, what is it like attracting sponsors to the site and data? Because as you say, it's 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 a uh, the very next thing. And-
2: yeah, I mean, it basically doesn't happen. I mean, in terms of direct advertising campaigns, in fact, I used to get more than I get now. I think at best, I would probably get two a year. Uh, I used to always get one around the launch 2K. I'd always get a, a 2K campaign for a month to six weeks and then a few others with, with a few different brands. But yeah, it's tough. Like It's just tough. And the, and the numbers are not big enough to warrant that much interest. It's only really if you're, if you're specifically going after that market and how many companies are specifically trying to go after the British basketball market. Basically none. It doesn't really happen. And then so obviously from a Hoops Weeks All-Star Classic standpoint, it's slightly different. And that is, well, until, so we signed a three-year deal with Nike last year. This year was meant to be the second year of the deal. And the last year, the deal will be next year, which makes a massive, massive difference. And then aside from that, Moulton have been a long-term, a long-term supporter Sports serve, five or six, do all the design branding stuff. And then kind of then some smaller ones as well. Always balling, uh, let me play, some of the independent basketball stores, some of which no longer exist. But a lot of that is like, I'm in a unique situation because I have the website. So as much as you know, people can look at the first year we ran the Classic in 2014 and be like, oh, well... I didn't lose money. You know, the whole thing had a budget of around six, seven grand. We made money, but it's not a case of I just made up an event and then was able to get sponsors. I'd had the website for four years. I had the relationships with everyone I spoke to. And then I was going to them saying, I'm going to do an all star game this summer. Do you want to be involved? And that's a completely diff- different proposition to some random person that has no track record doing anything in the basketball space saying, I'm going to run a basketball event. I'm going to call Nike and ask whether or not they, they do it. You know, like now, obviously, I have a reputation within the space that allows me to have those conversations, so it makes it a lot easier. The longer I do this, the easier it is in many ways because the longer I have a track record of doing stuff within the basketball community, they know I'm not trying to make a quick buck. They know I'm not going to misspend their money. They know I'm not going to bring their brand into dis- dis- disrepute, and I hope they would know that I'm going to deliver on everything that we say we're going to deliver in terms of whatever the agreement is but yeah even then it's still a struggle you know before before nike it was very much a case of as many sponsors as possible as small as 100 pounds 200 pounds you know like and then by having lots of smaller ones it allows us to kind of get to that point plus ticket sales ticket sales you know be three grandish that would make off ticket sales and then just working things out as i go like we we in we had in a food stall like 2 years ago which we hadn't done for the first 2 years and again, it sounds so simple and I don't know why I never thought about it, especially you hear owners always talking about secondary spend. So it was like, okay, send Tope down to, you uh, went down to like cost Cutter or Lidl with a hundred pounds and bought like snacks, water bottles, juice, whatever. We made like 400 quid and like for a, for a small time event, like that amount of money makes a big difference. So yeah, all these things kind of like, yeah, help sort of increase my knowledge of how to run event, how to make them successful, how to how to bring in money to be able to to make it work and just, not lose money. That's always the goal. It's just don't lose money. As long as we're not losing money, we're all right. Uh, now it's kind of getting to a point from the Nike involvement where it's like, okay, now we're actually making money. Uh, now we can do things. I've got like, I've got to be careful about what I say, but we've, we're making a financial commitment from the foundation. Cause so I've got a foundation. So I've got the limited company, which is a business run through the foundation, which is a community interest company. We're making a financial commitment, which is not for me. It's a pretty substantial amount of money to a, Basketball court renovation, which is basically all off the back of profits from the event. It's a it's a, it's a beautiful position to be in, where we've gone from, are we going to make money, or are we going to are we going to lose money? Like, are we going to lose money? And now it's like, okay, cool. We're now in a situation where we're, we're making money every year, and we've got a little bit of money in the in the in the bank, and we can now funnel that into other things. The original plan was always to before t- Ducketts Common Turnpike Lane got renovated, the original plan the first year was to put in bleachers at Turnpike Lane with mm-hmm. the money, if we made money obviously and then i think it's even in the program if you go and look back at the program but it never ended up happening and kind of yeah you just realize that all these things take time it's just it's a slow burn long process
1: i suppose it's establishing those foundations sam and to do that sort of organically makes it even more impressive to be fair and that's why i think a lot of people appreciate what you're trying to achieve as we've kind of spoken about before moving on a little bit you've delved into data and marketing um, thoughts on how we could utilise this to grow the game in the UK?
2: I mean, we have no data. We've got a very, very small amount of data, and and data is what drives everything. The only reason anyone would invest in anything is knowing the numbers. And if we don't know the numbers, you're never going to get an investment. And so, the fact that nobody can say this is how much the British basketball market is worth, no wonder no one ever gets involved with it. If I could turn around and say we have so right now, for example, Barcelona, we've got 30,000 registered members. If we knew the average spend of those members or, or the average inco- household income of those members or like other data that's just, just basic marketing stuff, uh, you can then use that to put together a piece to pitch to whether it's investors or, or private companies, sponsors. Um, yeah, data is everything. And, I, you know, like a lot of people have been talking about the need for everyone to come together, share the database, have one shared database, share the sport as a whole. Like there's a lot of people that have the thought process that, The only way the sport will get a major commercial deal is if it's for the whole sport. It's not just for the BBL. It's not just for the National League. It's for the whole thing. So it's like, if you're going to come in, you will get access to this. You get access to the top level. You get access to the grassroots. You get access to the federation. But until we've got our numbers, I, I struggle to see why anyone would do that. Because right now, there is no proof or evidence that the market is worth that much. Like, who who's come into British basketball and has really profited? Like, what incentive is there for anyone to be involved? Like, you know, I always... One of the things I'm thinking about doing for the foundation, producing a document which literally shows, lays bare, all of the numbers of the Hoops All-Star Classic, everything. Show my entire spreadsheet, where the money comes from, uh, the amount from each. Obviously, this would have to be cleared by sponsors before I do it because that's confidential information from their standpoint. Because I think if people were to see the numbers and see that we this year we were on track to turn over the most we've turned over over the course of the two days like a very decent amount of money I would say from where we started it would inspire people to be like oh like maybe there's a bit of money in this game like maybe actually I could run my own event we need more entrepreneurs in the sport we need more, need more people that are willing to do, to do sessions i always say like one of my massive frustrations with with the british basketball community as a whole is just i feel a lot of people are very apathetic everyone is willing to complain about things uh, and whine about things, but no one's really trying to be the change and trying to do the things that they trying to fix the things that they complain about and that we need more people that are really going to be on the ground and, and making it happen. And I actually was having a conversation with a member of, a member of staff from Barcelona yesterday. And I was saying to them, I, I don't feel like Barcelona does a good enough job as a federation of acting as an enabler of empowering people on the ground to do things. You know, it's, it's stupid to me that i have no reason to go to the federation to get their involvement with the hoops fix all star classic officially because i don't know what benefit they could give me that's just ridiculous and the same for anyone else that's like i'm almost certain that anyone wants to set up a three-on-three tournament a five-on-five tournament no one would think oh i've got a bar because bar has never position themselves as if you're trying to do something We can help you. We can help you get your insurance. We can give you a blueprint of things that you should be thinking about, health and safety, safeguarding, revenue streams, like the best way of of doing this. Like, and if you do this, this and this, we'll make it a Basketball England sanctioned event. And as a result of that, Basketball England could then count all of the participants of that event as their own sort of registered players, which they can then use in their own data to help sell the sport. Stuff like that, which, you know, in my opinion, seems pretty basic and fundamental. And I don't quite understand why we don't see more stuff like that from the federation you know one of the things this summer which i started in march and i actually still haven't finished i got quite far with it and then it just fell to the wayside like many of the projects that i'm always juggling the Hoopsix foundation has always been it's only ever had private money running through it but one of the things i want to do is set it up so that we can start applying for public pots of funding obviously to do that i have to get my governance on point it can't just be me as a sole director that just runs around, does what he wants, basically. I'm the only one that oversees the bank account. And obviously, I trust myself, and I, I know that I have integrity, and I'm not just rinsing money and, and taking the mick. But at the same time, I know that's not good enough for a Sport England or, or any other sort of public funding body. So I'm like, okay, what, what do I need to do? I need to constitute the foundation properly. I need to set up a board of directors. I need to set up a, a sort of documented mission. I need to have a constitution saying what we stand for and how, how as an organization, we work. And there's a, there's a website called, I think it's Club Mark. I think it is a Sport England's website, which basically helps sports organizations kind of set set themselves up to, to be able to do those things, apply for public pots of funding and be a proper organization, like kind of gives them advice on, on how to set it up. And when you get into the weeds of each page, like, you know, this is the structure you should have. These are the things you need to think about. When you get into the details, it always says go to your official federation website to get more information. Now, you go to basketball England's website, you go through the pages to try and find information about what you should be doing if you want to be a pr- legit basketball organization. There's nothing. And actually what it does is it redirects you back to the Sport England website. It's like for all advice about setting up clubs, go to the Sport England Mark website, whatever it's called, Club Matters, Club Mark, Club Matters, one of the two. And so then I was like, oh well, let me just be interested to see what other federations do. I ended up like copying more stuff from rugby, canoeing, rowing, like the most random sports in the world because they have downloadable PDFs, checklists, just all of this support that I'm like, this is exactly what I need, like just someone to hold my hand through it, because I've never done it before. And that's again, it's like federation, like we in England, when you look at our numbers, yeah, the clubs we have, we've got like eight hundred clubs. Like that's just insanely low. When you're talking mm. about the level of prosperity we have as a nation and the population we have, especially when you compare to other European nations, same with the registra- same with the the registered members. You know, France has six hundred ninety thousand registered basketball players. Barcelona, we United, got like thirty. Got thirty thousand. Spain has three hundred eighty-five thousand. Germany has two hundred fifteen thousand. Like we're just so far behind the curve. And the only way we're going to get more registered players is having more more clubs. The only way you can have more clubs is if you. Enable people to set up clubs and understand why it would be of benefit for them to set up a club. Uh, you know, there's no there's no real stories about like, like what's the why would I set up a club? You know, what are the benefits of setting up a club? I'm sure there are people that are doing pretty well off, off running a basketball club in 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 England. So those are all the things that really like you know from a, a federation standpoint, I feel they should be doing to to help grow the sport, which I just don't I don't see at the moment. I, I struggle to see real tangible progress on the federation side to really push the sport forward. I don't understand what is changing or what they're doing to change things because from, from what I see and from, what I, from everybody I speak to, no one could tell me. I don't know. No
0: nah, man. Yeah, it's, you know, we'll get into the Pops uh, opinions from the, the podcast a little bit later on, but marketing materials like that seem pretty basic. Case studies like that seem pretty basic. And, you know, it should be day one of let's put a marketing plan for the next year together. You probably have those things, right? And I don't know it well enough to comment, to be honest. Yeah, it's um, it's disappointing that we're still at that stage, I, I guess. And yeah, I'm hoping that we can prove that a lot in the years to come. And then, you know, in, on the data side, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, if you went to a brand and you pitched it in the right way and you had all of the data behind you across GB basketball, as in not just GB basketball, but all of the federations together and the local league guys, imagine like that would be unbelievable as a, okay, this is the market you can tap. Like they, they're not going to say no to that in my opinion. I, I, you know, yes, it might not be comparable to, you know some of the largest sports in the country and you might impressions wise not have as much of a, a state, but it doesn't mean it's not valuable it doesn't mean that you couldn't monetize that in the right pitch but um again outside thoughts i guess on that but moving on to the kind of coverage side of it a bit more we've we've discussed it many times and obviously many many years ago now in depth in terms of why you know is is a as a, as a community, I suppose, basketball-wise, we're so, we're so kind of obsessed with, old oh, media coverage is bad, and uh, both in, in TV and print. And kind of playing, I wanted to watch this kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit, thinking about it from from the marketing side, I guess, you know, how many of us, if you were in a marketing agency, if, if you, and you were looking at the audience that we were going after, how many of us would you say, you know, between the ages of 18 and 35, kind of watch terrestrial TV these days? Like, I know, obviously, if we had a TV deal and we went that route, we probably would turn onto that, but just, again also how many of us pick up a newspaper and I know obviously, you know, things, the things we're looking at in terms of the value of that is not necessary to tap into the audience. It might be sponsorship and, you know, investment and things like that. But again, your thoughts on that mate?
2: Well, where do people watch live sport?
0: Normal terrestrial channels or through their own streaming services, which is kind of what I was going to come to in a bit. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you that terrestrial, like TV obviously on some level is, uh, is very different to how it used to be, um, especially because there's the number of channels and, and everything else. But, but realistically, I, that's one thing that I, I always had the older heads saying to me, you know, TV is, TV is the key, TV is the key. And I was just like, no, nah, it's not. Uh, and then I went, I th- I've said this before, you might have heard me say it, but I, I went at the last NBA game, I went into the foyer of the O2 and I stood there for about two hours. And I interviewed hundreds of fans coming from well actually not 100. sorry i interviewed a lot of fans i'm going to release this at some point when i get get around to editing it and i asked them you know these are all people that would consider themselves nba fans nick fans whatever and i, was, and, I and i said to them you know do, what do you know about british basketball you know pretty much across the board all of them are like they don't know anything why not well it's never on tv so what would it take for you to get interested it's like they need to f- just come across it by chance, it needs to be put in front of their face. People aren't going to go and search this out. If you're on channel 365 or whatever, like people aren't going out of their way to, to go and watch that. The only people that are going to watch that are the, the hardcore British basketball fans that already know about it. They're not the ones they are trying to convert. To get into the mainstream, you've got to be on, on, on mainstream channel. I think as much as digital is massive and digital is important, TV is way bigger than people think it is. I'm convinced about that, Like especially especially free-to-air TV. You know, like you're telling me if, if basketball wasn't on Channel 4 or the BBC or, or whatever, that wouldn't make a massive difference to the fortunes of the sport and how many eyeballs are on it. Like it would be, it would be huge. On the flip side of that, it's not, it's not just that. There needs to be a, a coherent digital strategy, 100%. And that's, you know, one of my frustrations always is you go on the BBL website and it's just a template from, from one of their partners and it just looks awful and it's not very user-friendly and it's not going to sell the sport. And the same if I go on the Bass Wingerland website, it's the same sort of thing. Like it's just not captivating any type of way, and and then to find the information that you're looking for is normally very difficult as well, which is the whole point of the website in the first place. So yeah, I, I that is yeah the TV thing. I think I think is a, a key piece, if only just for the for the for the sponsorship revenue. I mean, I was I was even saying the other day the NTL deal when in, NTL went bust, that deal that the BBL would sign with them was worth twenty four million over ten years, right? like if the, if they hadn't have gone bust the sport would be in a very different place right now and the bbl gets a bit of a hard rap like because you know they they essentially left left sky to go there but for them it was a safe bet because the english football league had done it right they it was the same thing the football league w- w- with the ntl so 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 for them it's kind of like well, you can say that we're dumb, but football is just as dumb. Like, and and it, I'm pretty certain anybody in that position, if you had a TV company coming and saying this is a 10-year deal with 24 million, ain't no one turning that down. I don't think anyone's turning that down. So yeah, I've become softer on the BBO over the years as I've sort of got a bit of an understanding of, of some of the issues. And obviously after after that after that happened, that was kind of like went into the duck ages of of like the sport really struggling. But the, the amount of money that, that TV brings in not just from a direct sort of rights perspective but then also the sponsorship then you can sell as a result of it, it makes a massive difference to the bottom lines of clubs and that's ultimately you know, as you you heard Paul Blake say on the, on the owners' podcast like they need to bring in more revenue. The only way player salary is going to go up is if they're making more money. the only way they're going to make more money is having more revenue streams, which includes rights deals so tv is a, is, a, is a big part of it
0: yeah and I'm hoping you know as um, as, as you were talk, you guys were talking about on the on the roundtable podcast that there's tangible progress with that in that in the next you know couple of years because you know there's murmurs of something happening there isn't there so fingers crossed for that speaking speaking about that I suppose what do you think uh, obviously about Ovi's impact like you know we we, again you've talked about this a little bit specifically obviously with him playing domestically and that's another big element that you're you've spoken about you know what was what was the hope I suppose like once he once he had that bit of exposure from from Love Island like how do you think that was capitalized on if it was capitalized on from from the sport domestically
2: uh i don't i don't think it made the impact that i would have hoped it would have made at the start of the season uh for sure i mean the lions i'm pretty sure had their best crowds so from that perspective it's better than than what they've done but maybe not necessarily what i would have expected which again just speaks to the different audiences right like Ovi's two and a half million followers on Instagram and not basketball fans. They don't care about Ovi as the basketball player. They care about Ovi as the Love Island guy, you know, the celebrity, the person. It's a different thing. But say, saying that, you know, I've said this before is I don't think the Lions capitalized on his presence in the way that they could have done. If I was them, I would have hired a videographer and literally every single game would be covered and I'd release a sort of webisode pretty much. You would focus on the Lions, but make it kind of about him and leading with him and then sort out all their marketing on 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 the side of that as well it just amazes me that teams will spend substantial amounts of money on players but then won't make the same sort of investment in the front office to really capitalise on that player presence I think I did there was one game I filmed and him and Justin had sort of one of their best sort of combined games of the season combined for like almost 60 I think did a little mixtape put it on Twitter got picked up by all the OB fans and there was kind of like, I mean, it did pretty well. I think across all platforms, it ended up doing 50,000 ish views. And that was one game. And I didn't, obviously, I didn't go to all of them. I went to a few of them, but that was one game. And it's like, I'm pretty certain that that one game, that one clip that I put out, did more video views than anything the Lions did of him all season long. And it just shows you where it's like, if they had done that every single game and got those numbers every single game, again that's data which you can then take to an advertiser and say we're serving up x amount of views per season on all of our video highlights pay us this much money and we stick your logo in the corner or whatever so yeah but again i it's it's always it's always easy to make comments from from the outside and i th- I think you never know what's going on on the inside and what the conversations are that are being had and kind of what's possible, what's not possible. Obviously, Ovi has a pretty substantial management team and sort of PR agencies and all that kind of stuff. It's not a case if you just go directly to Ovi and he says yes or no. So so yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to have seen more impact. But again, it's it's a tough one, right? Because I didn't, I didn't particularly like seeing all the teams jump on it and be like, Love Island's Ovi is coming, see him play. And I was just like yeah i don't know if i like that but again it's i'm a basketball purist and actually if that's going to bring people to the game that wouldn't have otherwise come and then maybe convert them into basketball fans moving forward why is that a bad thing but yeah i didn't i didn't necessarily feel there was there was that much coordinated marketing brand marketing uh, thought that went into it compared to what what could have been done to capitalize on it for sure but again i don't want to talk here like i know everything and you know the federation don't know what they're doing and london lives don't know what they're doing it's like this is just my opinion i might be completely wrong but um that's kind
0: of my